Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molyneux, and I am joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. More specifically, we compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. We address issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. This week we're here to discuss the work of Matthew Runley, who has to a large degree discredited the famous work of Thomas Piketty. In April 2014, the 26-year-old MIT student had just read Thomas Piketty, Capital in the 21st Century. Piketty asserted in the book that the rich are growing richer because their wealth grows faster than economic output. Piketty worries, therefore, that wealth inequality gets worse in perpetuity. In the early hours of the morning, Rodney shared his thoughts to the book in a comment on a blog post. His six paragraphs were enough to get the attention of the site's owner, Professor Tyler Cowan of George Mason University. Cowan made a featured article to comment, and other economists took notice. Rodney followed up with a 70-page paper entitled Deciphering the Fall and Rise of the Net Capital Share. Here on the program today, to make us all have more sense of this paper's Professor Nicholas Tiedemann. Dr. Tiedemann was an assistant professor of econ- economics at Harvard University from 1969 to 1973, during which uh, time he was a senior staff economist to the Pref- President's Council of Economic Advisors from 1971. Since 1973, he has been at Virginia Tech with various visiting positions at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, University of Buckingham, and the American Institute for Economic Research. Tiedemann's academic interests include taxation of land, voting theory, and political philosophy. In 1987, he devised the voting system called Ranked Pairs, and in 2000, the CPOSTV proportional voting method. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tiedemann. Thank you. So, yeah, this this paper certainly raised a lot of a lot of eyebrows. I mean, the Thomas Piketty's book is perhaps one of the most talked about. Uh, you know, works of modern economics, and this this paper really does a lot to, uh, to to raise some questions at the very heart of it. Well, what do you think is the general importance of this paper? Well, there are two ways in which it, it's important. One is it casts doubt on Piketty's expectation or prediction, and the other is that it opens up a new line of research into the way the economy functions. So let me take those one at a time. Uh, Piketty, as you indicated, says that we can expect inequality to get worse because the rich don't spend as much as they earn. They're going to be saving more and more, and therefore they're going to be uh, accumulating more and more capital, and this is going to make inequality worse and worse. Uh, Piketty points out that for this to be true, Uh, it has to be true that the share of output going to the owners of capital will increase over time as the amount of capital increases. And economists wouldn't necessarily expect this to happen. Whether or not it will will occur that uh, the share of the owners of capital increases as the quantity of capital increases depends on what economists call the elasticity of substitution between labor and capital. And 
the traditional belief of economists uh, some decades ago was that the elasticity of substitution between labor and capital is one, or near, nearly one. And what that means is that when the ratio of the quantity of capital to the quantity of labor changes by 1%, the ratio of their prices changes by 1%. And if this happens, then the share of output going to capital and the share of output going to labor are stable as the quantities of labor and capital change. In order for it to be the case that as the quantity of uh, capital increases, the share of capital in output increases, the elasticity of substitution has to be greater than one. That means that, uh, well, labor and capital are highly substitutable. It's as if capital is close to being just another form of labor, another standardized input. So that if the price ratio changes a bit, people will just use a lot more capital. Okay. Uh, of these these two systems where you've got uh, the elasticity of substitution being one and, and greater than one, just so our listeners get some well, concrete I, examples in their mind. Like I guess to, to phrase this as a question, you have, let's say it is a factory where people do things by hand. Let's say they're you know molding clay, and then you make a clay molding machine. Uh, if it was exactly one, does that mean that they are indifferent to the price cost of labor versus capital? Or What exactly no. does one mean in this situation? It, what, what one means is that if workers are getting a third of the output when they're molding things by hand, workers will also get a third of the output when they're using a machine. The wages will be higher, uh, output will be higher, and they'll be continuing to get a third. So no matter how much capital you get, wage, uh, laborers will always get a third. No matter how many people uh, are added to the labor force, well, it, maybe wages will go down, but the share of labor and output will always be a third. And and in the case where it's closer to zero, because that's what many people would suspect is that the substitute to be uh, the elasticity is actually closer to zero. What what would that mean in this situation? Well, that as you got more capital, the share of capital would go down. As you got more labor, the share of labor would go down. And then finally, if it reaches very high numbers, and the more capital you have or more labor you have, the elasticity would mean in this case? Well, it, it, if you the elasticity of substitution were two or three, then uh, as you got more capital, the share of output that went to capital would grow. And intuitively, what do you think is the most plausible uh, value for this elasticity? Well, I did some work in which I tried to estimate what it was 10 or 15 years ago, and I came up with a number of 0.8. There's there's actually a chart of uh, looking at a review of different papers that Ron Lee does in here, and between 0 and 0.5, most of it there, it's actually uh, either 14 or 21 based upon gross or net uh, yes. yeah, return. Uh, 12, I'll, I'll just look at, at net because the paper looks at net uh, return to... Uh, to yes. income each case. I was surprised when I saw how many estimates were less than a half. It seems like estimates less than a half are uh, the, the norm, you might say. Right? So in, I, in my saying that it was 0.8, I was sort of on the high side, you might say. 
But you mentioned the difference between gross and net, and our reader, our listeners won't understand that without some explanation. So uh, let me spend a bit of time on that. Uh, one of the things that goes on in the productive process is that capital is used up. It depreciates. Uh, and the gross domestic product uh, doesn't subtract anything for depreciation. Uh, the net domestic product takes depreciation out. And for a long time, economists recognized it was very hard to estimate depreciation. They tended to use the gross domestic product as a measure of output, even they, though they knew that net domestic product was a, the, the measure of what you could uh, consume consistently over time. Uh, and more recently, the estimates of depreciation have improved, and there's a slight tendency to uh, use the net figures more often now, although uh, what you tend to get in the news is the, the gross figures. And every time I see the gross figures quoted, I think, wouldn't it be nice if people understood the difference between the gross and the net and the, the virtue of using the net figure rather than the gross? Yeah, if you look at this paper, you can see the dramatic difference. Uh, you can look at the net capital share, and that's yes. really, I guess, the if you look at the big picture, what is Piketty, what is he famous for, saying, as time goes on, uh, capital is getting more of a return, labor is getting less of a share. And yes. if, you, if you look at gross, you see this since the middle 70s grow and grow. If you look at, and, and much higher than it was uh, in the 1950s, 60s, and, seven, uh, and early 70s, if you look at the net, it's a whole different story. It's a story of something which is kind of flat with a large dip in the 70s and early 80s, which is, yes. which is yes. not the story we're hearing. Yes. Uh, the more capital you have, the more depreciation you have. And if capital is just being compensated for the fact that the, the capital is wearing out, that's not a, a, a true increase in the share that, that capital receives. Uh, so that's why it is very important to... Uh, be talking about the net figure rather than the gross figure when you're concerned about the share that capital receives over time. And, and there's some interesting speculation uh, that's that's made in here saying that the actual amount of depreciation may be growing because of the different types of capital we have. In the past, yes. a factory you know, has a certain depreciation, but now we have software and computers that depreciate and are fairly worthless after five, ten years. Yes. Uh, we have... Uh, some things that wear out quickly, other things that wear out slowly. And uh, software is a very uh, different kind of capital, uh, which brings up yet another thing. When Piketty, uh, not Piketty, but Ronley uh, divides capital into uh, land, e equipment, and structures. And we know that there are productive assets that aren't in any of these categories and also aren't people, uh, such as software and uh, <sighs> goodwill. You mentioned patents. Yes. Uh, well, as well. patents is, and, and copyrights and software. And uh, there's also uh, things like water rights and uh, spectrum rights. These are things that people get returns from. And when I 
look at Ronley's work, I think, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting to expand it and find some way to include these other productive assets as well? Uh, another thought that arises in this context is that it seems to me interesting to divide productive assets between those that are the product of human effort, like uh, software and machines and uh, structures, and those that are uh, the product of government grant, like uh, land and water rights and spectrum rights and pollution rights and things like that. It seems to me that there's a possibility that these assets that are the product of government grants are uh, growing in importance and that that may have something to do with the growing inequality. The, if it's just a matter of uh, machines and structures, those are things that are never going to be uh, scarce in the long run because we're not, not uh, – they're not going to uh, grow in scarcity value because we can always make more of them. But there's only uh, a certain amount of water, there's only a certain amount of land, and uh, those who have the right to use it are going to be in a position of uh, controlling something that is more and more relatively scarce as we get more of the other things. Yeah, so I think we could talk more about housing uh, later, but I think on that point, the paper, I, 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 after reading it, you really realize this is you know, a, a, really the primary focus, accumulation versus scarcity. The Piketty uh, hypothesis in this paper is that capital will have an increasing share due to accumulation, which means that man-made goods, as they are produced and there is more accumulation, will basically control the market and, and get a greater return. Whereas Ronley says if uh, the greater return we are seeing has nothing to do with the accumulation of man-made goods, but the scarcity of goods which uh, cannot be made in abundance. Uh, is that fair, uh, a fair assessment of what this is saying? Well, I would say that that's the suspicion I get from reading Ronley's paper, and yet it didn't seem to me that he uh, said it clearly enough uh, to be sure that he sings, sees things that way. Yeah, I, I guess what he does is he tries to show what it would mean uh, to sh to show that the theory behind uh, – behind a uh, accumulation theory would make sense with uh, net capital appreciation, which is just basically capital appreciation when you consider that it depreciates. And he uh, does a, a good amount of math. I'll, I, I will say that I was following it along. I still uh, need – this is homework for me to finish up later to kind of make sure I, I understand it all. Uh, but he basically says there's a sigma value, sigma for substitutability, uh, of uh, capital and labor that needs to be above a certain uh, threshold for uh, Piketty's general uh, general conclusion, the smoking gun of the rising gap of 
of R minus G, which is to say the return to capital minus the growth of the economy. No, the the, the G is not the growth of the economy, it, it turns out. G, well, I believe, uh, is the growth rate of uh, the price of the particular asset. Uh, so, so there is a tendency for land prices to grow at roughly the growth rate of the economy. But uh, the... Uh, where he has defined G, I, I believe he has always used it to mean the growth rate of the price of the uh, investment good being discussed. Okay, so it's not it's not a global term uh, as much right. as it is one asset. Yes. Okay. Well, and and it it's not the, the rate at which the quantity grows; it's the rate at which the price grows. Sure. It's it's the it's the it's the market value growth. Yes. And yeah, so for Piketty, seeing in, in I guess any asset class, then that the return to capital is going to outpace it, there has to be a, a certain threshold of the elasticity has to be above a value, and it was already at a threshold which was considered uh, uh, unusually high. Uh, but uh, Runley's work in this paper actually shows that it is quite a bit higher when you consider net. Uh, uh, elasticity or uh, the net return to capital, and yes. it's actually even more implausible based upon the data than really any economist is willing to believe. Which tends to, I guess, that's my takeaway is that is Runley's proof in a way that it seems unlikely that the accumulation theory is explaining what's happened with today's data. Is is that what what I could take away from this? Well. I don't think that Ronley would use the word proof that you did. I would say argument or evidence. Uh, so, in, so let me restate what my version of what you said. Uh, in order to believe that it's the accumulation of capital that causes inequality, you have to believe that the elasticity of substitution with respect to labor and capital in production of net output after depreciation is greater than one. And there's very little support for that conjecture. Therefore, we should not attribute growing inequality to the accumulation of capital. So, so going forward, this is actually kind of a tangent. As machines, let's say that machine learning is just a complete breakthrough that makes human labor, unskilled labor, basically unemployable at any uh, subsistence levels. Uh, would that change the value of sigma, of, of uh, substitutability uh, in this case, or would that actually not uh, change it significantly? Well, if growing capital makes labor, unemployability, labor unemployable, that would be evidence of a very high elasticity of substitution. There would be evidence that capital is substituting for labor, uh, whereas well, an alternative conjecture or, or alternative possible future is that as robots take over more and more activities, uh, labor will find uh, activities that robots can't do. More and more, we will move to a service economy. And that's that's the that's a big question of what we'll what we'll have going forward. Yes. And uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, and I, I guess there's there's a comment at the end, and I believe this is uh, there was a couple different replies to it. I believe this was the first of it, which was uh, uh, Brad DeLong saying that this may show that uh, this is uh, not yet showing that uh, capital is taking its share, but long term, it, it you can't make any conclusions that uh, that uh, and just to quote it, the only dissent I wish to make is this: Ronley is correct today, but if Piketty is right. He may no longer be correct in 50 years, which is an interesting uh, point to make, I thought. Yes. Uh, the it, There's no reason to uh, assume that the elasticity of substitution between labor and capital will be forever constant. Uh, and so it might be that a time will come when uh, – Capital is more substitutable for labor, and where the accumulation of capital uh, can be described as a reason for growing inequality. But uh, Ronnie's point is that we're not there at, at at this point in time anyway. And importantly, that is actually you know Piketty's point is saying there is growing inequality, there is stratification, and this is his explanation of what we see today. And before we speculate on the future, we first need to do what we can to describe that. Yes. Well, let, let's spend a little bit of time on the question of what is the explanation of growing inequality. There's no doubt that there is growing inequality. Uh, and part of the growing inequality is associated with the uh, growing differential between the uh, incomes of skilled and unskilled labor. But it seems to me that a lot of the uh, increase in the share of income going to the very wealthy has to do with uh, their ownership of non-reproducible assets, uh, land and patents and uh, various other rights, uh, taxi medallions, uh, crop quotas, uh, spectrum rights. Uh, and then there is also uh, a growing number of what I would call monopolistic niches. We have one dominant search company, one dominant operating system company, one dominant used goods company. Uh, one dominant uh, social media company uh, and you're going to be very rich if you got, got in on these early uh, and uh, own a significant share of them as they, uh, their, their dominance becomes more and more unchallengeable. Uh, I don't know how much of inequality can be attributed to these things but if I were looking for the causes of inequality, I would want to see how much can be attributed to these things. And I would expect that not all that much comes from the growing number of machines and structures uh, that are uh, owned by rich people. It's an interesting series of, of, of discussions in this paper on the classical 
uh, theories of, of monopoly rents and just basically profits, that in time profits will go to zero because competition will drive them out. Uh, and Rogley, uh, sorry, uh, Ronley tries to actually uh, detect this by doing some time series analysis and looking at profit as a residual that's not explained by the return of income to uh, either capital or labor here. And it it is uh, his surprising conclusion, uh, this is to quote in uh, Robert Solo's uh, response to it in the end, is that... Uh, it is what Abelerner long ago defined as the, the degree of monopoly for that firm or the representative firm. According to Ronley's calculation, that is what has been rising for U.S. corporations since about 1980. So how big is it? Uh, and yeah, some, some numbers of how big it is. But yeah, it, it seems to say this, this quote-unquote pure profit that Ronley says, the residual from his analyses in the time series, is in fact uh, growing since 1980, which seems to imply some degree of monopoly rents. Yes. And uh, and I mean this and this goes hand in hand with the return to uh, to housing, uh, which it's I, I would like to dive into at some point to the to the data behind that. But I, uh, if you have uh, more to say about uh, the uh, the classic ideas of what drives inequality, I think there's an interesting point uh, that uh, Brad DeLong in his response makes about the uh, kind of a previous theory that it's all education. It's just there's a more educated class. We're not making education for everybody, and that's driving inequality. But he is certainly skeptical that the, uh, the, the mega-rich are not just the successful, the skilled, but there seems to be you know, uh, folks that are driving huge, huge incomes and, and wealth from what do not seem to be, uh, I guess, unique skill. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, there are two aspects of inequality that are growing. One is the inequality between skilled and unskilled workers, and the other is the greater and greater share of income taken by people at the very top. Uh, and there will be different explanations of the two. Uh, so, and I think that uh, the uh, growing opportunity to earn monopoly profits may indeed be the uh, explanation of most of the uh, increase in the share of wealth going to those at the very top. Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is something you can certainly see in uh, kind of low barrier to entry occupations, such as uh, computer, uh, uh, you know, computer science and, and software engineering, that there are people who make you know great salaries uh, as as employees, but it. It doesn't seem to even that's a million dollars a year is nothing compared to the uh, to the returns on the the, the mega rich the people yeah. whose whose capital works for them. Well, there aren't very many computer programmers who get salaries of a million dollars a year. I suppose that there may be some who are highly skilled in uh, developing games who uh, might get uh, earnings of that sort, uh, but. Uh, yeah, I, I say that as like a ceiling. That's about as much as a person can ever hope to get by skill. If you talk about in the entire economy, a, a, a movie actor or a uh, or a skilled athlete may get twenty million a year, but that's yes. about as much as you can hope. Right, uh, and so another thing that came up in I think it was Solo's comments, so but one of the comments at the end of the paper was that. Uh, 
the last few decades have seen a growing share of the economy uh, involved in the finance sector. And uh, while it is important to recognize that, that finance makes a contribution to the productivity of the economy, uh, there's also a suspicion that something has happened to make it possible for the finance sector to uh, capture a return that doesn't reflect its productivity. And uh, I would want to examine that. I think that that might be true, but I'm not enough of an expert to be confident of that. So I guess this paper first came to the attention of, of many people who are interested in the ideas of Henry George insofar as there is a very dramatic graph of uh, showing that the return to uh, you know all non-housing capital versus housing capital, uh, and I believe it's, this is the graph of all G7 uh, nations from 1950 until uh, 2010, and the housing share has been increasing, and increasing quite dramatically, whereas uh, either uh, the weighted or non-weighted for how big the economies are, but uh, for non-housing has been, has been shrinking. And this is something that someone who, who is, is sympathetic to the ideas of Henry George tends to uh, see as uh, pretty relevant uh, to what they, what they have, have been, uh, been, been thinking. Uh, well, what do you think the overall uh, relevance is this to the kind of classic uh, ideas of Henry George? Well, before I could discuss that, I have to talk something about the use of words. When Ronley uses the word capital, he uses, he means what I would mean by the word assets. He regards land as a kind of capital. Now, what words ought to mean is a matter that uh, is determined by a complex social process and no one person can specify uh, arbitrarily what a word means. But some of our listeners might suppose that when Romney talks about the return to housing capital, he means the return to the boards and stones and windows and so on that go into a house. But what he actually means is the return to the combination of the structure and the land. And it's hard to separate out the land and structure components. But uh, my, and Ronley doesn't do it that I can see. Uh, well, he uses a lot of uh, you know the kind of standard orthodox terms. A production yes. function. The production function has two inputs: it has labor and it has everything else, i.e., capital, uh, yes. which is uh, very different than the ideas that we're going through in the classic economics of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, uh, and tended and and looked at three factors of production. But we don't. But there is no. Uh, there are no practicing economists, as far as I know, who try to use a three-factor production uh, function. Well, to... there are a, a few here and there. Uh, are they treated uh, but, very seriously in your take? Yeah. Well, okay. but you should notice that uh, Ron Lee does divide up his concept of capital into structures, equipment, and land. So he is, recognizes land as a separate factor of production in this sense. Uh but I don't believe that he has a chart showing the return to land or to housing land separate to the return to uh, money invested in uh, constructing housing structures. 
uh, and it seems to me it would be important to make that distinction, to uh, notice that, I, well, I suspect, uh, that what's been increasing is the return to uh, the ownership of housing land and that uh, the uh, return to structures uh, may have gone up with the amount of money invested in structures. Uh, <clears throat> but the, uh, the rate of return, uh, well, the rate of return will be the, in equilibrium will be the same uh, for all investments. But uh, I think that there has been a, uh, a remarkable increase in the selling price of land over the past few decades. And uh, this increase in the selling price of land is substantially what is responsible for the growing share of income uh, going to housing. Yeah, if, if I understand uh, that that point in, in reference to this paper, there are a few uh, a few quotes showing that there's a rising return to structures and, and not just land, but in a lot of modern cases, it's the buying and selling of existing uh, existing real estate, which is if through zoning or any other method that's restricted, uh, you you there's a scarcity of location. You can't yes. build more buildings in one place. So it's not saying construction is getting more expensive. It's saying the location of buildings in places people want them is is becoming more scarce. In California, one of the things that happens is you have the Coastal Commission that limits the capacity of people to add to the amount of housing that's in the places where people want to live. And uh, that has increased uh, land prices in, ca in California considerably. Now, it, it may be that part of what's going on there is that uh, people have built a lot of houses and the share of output going to housing is up partly because there are so many more houses than there used to be. Uh, but I didn't see the kind of uh, breakdown of the return to in the housing sector to a return to more houses versus a, uh, a growing price of land. Uh, that would have been interesting to know about. Yeah, it reminds me of, a, of a something that uh, the Nobel laureate uh, Robert Schiller was, was uh, saying in this past few years or so, that the average return to land has not been increasing in uh, overall in the uh, past few decades. But that is saying for any given plot of land in America, what are the chances it increases? And no one's really saying that all land has become more valuable. It is saying that the land that is scarce that people have in demand is becoming increasingly valuable. And there's, yes. And I, I think that's there's a lot you can kind of confuse when you look at something in aggregate, which tends to, uh, yeah, it tends to belie what really is happening in the economies of, of that asset. When I was keeping track of population by county some years ago, I noticed that census after census, most of the counties in the United States lost population. Uh, most of the counties in the United States are rural and farms are getting bigger and bigger and the, the rural counties just can't support its population as large. So there is a lot of land out in rural counties that's going down in value. 
Now, this reminds me of another thought I had while reading Piketty, and that is that there's another factor of production that is interesting to think about that has not been brought into his analysis, and that is infrastructure, um, particularly highways. Uh, the existence of highways uh, can greatly influence the value of land. Uh, one measure of the economic efficiency of building a highway is that it's worth building if it raises land value by enough to cover the cost of the constructing the highway. Uh, so we might expect that the selling price of land would rise as uh, governments build more and more highways. And so it, in a model, in a more elaborate model of the kind that Romney has built, it would be interesting to take account of uh, government spending on infrastructure as something that one would expect to show up in higher land prices and ask uh, how much of the increasing uh, share of output that goes to land as a result of infrastructure spending. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a question that Brad DeLong in his uh, response uh, 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 had, had snapped onto. He asks, uh, how much of this is a real increase in housing intensity at, at the increasing share of housing? He says, how much reflects congestion driven by exhaustion of low-hanging superhighways? Which is to say, it, yeah, it, it, the highways made land accessible, but they uh, you certainly run out after time. Yes. Well, and and yet there may be places that we may have the uh, opportunity to build large cities in places that don't have them yet. Uh, recent decades have seen great growth, for example, in Dallas and Houston. Uh, is St. Louis capable of the same kind of great growth? Atlanta has grown greatly. Uh, a number of cities in Florida have grown, and similarly in Arizona. Uh, so it, while the size of any one city is uh, limited to some extent by the greater and greater cost of getting close to the center as you expand, there may be uh, possible centers of growth that haven't grown yet. And uh, as uh, people see their potential. They may uh, grow in the future in ways that we can't predict today. Yeah, I, I think you do have to ask a question of what is the limit of how much these cities can grow. And we are seeing more population being added to these cities. But is America capable of, of growing in, like the American Hong Kong or having the American Tokyo or even making another American New York City? Uh, it's, it's a, it's, I, I don't know what kind of chances I think something like this could happen. Well, I th uh, Boston has a lot of advantages, and uh, I think it could grow more. Uh, I guess like the the big cities, like you have your your sprawling metropolises, your Atlantas and your Phoenixes, and some some infill in places like Houston. But it's it's you, they never quite fill the shape of uh, some of the uh, I guess you know classically dense cities we see yes. elsewhere. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, 
you get a classically dense city uh, when you have a intense uh, transportation network of uh, high-speed transit of some kind, subways or uh, something else that gets lots of people to the center of the city without having to have so many highways that they all fill the highways. Uh, and uh, New York certainly has the greatest amount of that. Uh, Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington have some. Chicago has a significant amount of this uh, high-speed rail transit. Uh, so the, the, the places that grow to large cities, I think, will be places with such train service. And uh, we may be on the verge of a improved technology. When I uh, see the plans that have been proposed for a system in California uh, using a vacuum, I, I wonder uh, whether in 30 or 40 years uh, we'll have lots of cities with these trains running through uh, tubes with a nearly a near vacuum in them. Yeah, I mean that's that's Elon Musk's big proposal yes. in the last couple of weeks is he was uh, going to have a new series uh, series of underground tunnels that will have single uh, passenger vehicles. You kind of imagine well, if he builds tunnels, you might as well put subways in them. Uh, the hard part is building the, the tunnels. Yeah. Yes. Well, as well as the technology to make everything. Uh, safe and efficient, uh, and uh, uh, that technology perhaps is where uh, subways were in 1890, uh, and it will be interesting to see uh, whether that brings about a revolution in how large cities can be. It's imaginable that it would. Now, another thing that tends to happen with a transportation technology, something that happened when the car came along, is that the middle, the land in the middle of a city becomes less valuable. When it's hard to get to the city because of high transportation costs, it's particularly valuable to be in the center of the city. But uh, when transportation becomes cheaper, uh, it's easier to substitute land away from the center for land in the center. And so the land in the center loses some of its value. So there are uh, complex changes in the, the pattern of value over distance that can be expected as transportation technology improves. So as, as far as the value going to housing, uh, and more questions that are raised here. There's another question by uh, Brad DeLong. Uh, how much trust do we place in these imputed rent, uh, imputed rent imputations, and what do they mean anyway? And that's what, something that grabbed me the first time I read through these paragraphs. Uh, the housing data that the government uh, uh, data sources are, are, are uh, uh, produced that uh, were only used here uh, have homeowners uh, calculating their own imputed rent, which, as I understand, is their guess of how much their place would rent for if they were renting it, which I'm not sure if, how much accuracy we should say in a calculation such as that. Is, is that fair to say? Yes. Uh, just, but just because it's, uh, we don't know how much accuracy is in it 
doesn't mean that we can dismiss it utterly. What it means is that we're not spending as much on these interesting data questions as we might be spending, and so that people who want to do the kind of analysis that Ronnie does has to uh, make do with uh, less than we would like them to have. It's 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 not. Uh, his fault that this is all he has to work with. Oh, oh certainly. I, I think that he is he's just identifying a few places possible bias. And one piece of possible bias is that the housing costs are actually uh, understated here in that homeowners, when you actually have already paid off your mortgage, have a tendency to not care or underrate if, uh, you know, uh, if rents are going up in their city. Yes. But uh, again, that's something that could be explored uh, if enough effort were were put into it. Yeah, I, I think that's it's. I, I think it's it's very interesting. Yeah, how he used very uh, I, I guess generally available data. He restricted the the major part of his conclusions to the G seven countries because they have the best government data. But even uh, even they uh, don't have completely consistent with each other uh, data or complete. It, and and he just has to make notes here and there. So it's it's yes. it's yeah. I, I enjoy exactly how thorough this paper is in explaining what shortcomings modern data sources uh, have. Uh, in, in your opinion, what uh, what should we hope for? I guess or demand out of our government uh, data sources in order to to make sure we have this data for the future. Well, the main thing that we don't have, I think, is good data on the value of land, uh, and. So I, I think that that's the, uh, the highest priority. And, and what, what do you think we would, we would need to do to actually get this data? Is, is, it, is it knowable? Uh, well, there are, esti- there are estimating procedures of uh, variable uh, accuracy. Uh, I think that... Uh, if we had a good record of all real estate transactions across the country and some significant uh, effort on the part of economists to work with the data, uh, we could come up with a reasonable estimate of the value of land. I think that that's probably the way to go, to uh, have a database of all real estate transactions and... uh, Tease it apart from there. Yeah, I, I I will note offhand that it seems like the the best attempt at this is being done by the private sector, and as far as real estate uh, websites such as Zillow, uh, actually yes. have done the janitor work to actually make more or less uh, to get the data in one place and actually uh, make estimates on it. So it's actually uh, it seems like it's in my mind very interesting work from an economic perspective. Yes, uh, it. I think that Zillow is only concerned with the selling price of the combination of land and buildings. And uh, I believe they're only interested in the residential part. The commercial part would have to be done uh, separately. Uh, But I believe that uh, working with the Zillow database, it would be possible to come up with land estimates. But I'm, I'm not sure of that. Uh, 
but that's where I would start, I think. Oh, uh, but possibly also with uh, looking at the the census data and uh, seeing how that would integrate with the, the Zillow data. And it would also be important to have whatever, inf whatever information could be found on characteristics of properties. You know, do they have garages? Do they have fireplaces? How many bathrooms do they have? Uh, these are the things you would want to know in order to uh, estimate the value of buildings separately from the value of land. So uh, taking an overall look at this paper, uh, Piketty's work, Capital in the 21st Century, uh, this this makes a few critiques of, of its major findings. Uh, how valid do you think the overall uh, impact of Capital in the 21st Century is uh, in, in, in the wake of this paper, in, in, your, in your opinion? I think that anybody who wants to evaluate the contribution of Piketty would be well advised to take account of this work. I think that it uh, offers a, uh, a serious limitation uh, on the plausibility of the future that Piketty projects. And as far as making, I'd say in a certain roundabout way, this makes critiques of the classic two-factor uh, production function, et cetera, uh, how, how, how likely or I guess how resistant to the uh, profession of economics in academia today do you think it is to actually taking this into account and, and looking at uh, perhaps not just looking at capital as one yeah. homogenous uh, uh, factor? I think that uh, Ronley has taken us an important step in the direction of separating out assets into the into components, uh, he uses uh, land structures and equipment. Uh, I think that we need to uh, take account of infrastructure and uh, government assigned property rights to patents and other uh, scarce opportunities. Uh, but I think that. The way that Piketty has uh, been working with the data opens the door to more of the analysis that will uh, include additional uh, segregation of uh, assets into different classes. And I guess what one more question is, uh, yeah, I guess a classic uh, 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 Henry George's look at inequality and what it, it, it derives from, he finds reasons, but his work is also very imbued with uh, proposals uh, for for changing things. And if you go to uh, Piketty, he does pr promote a uh, wealth tax to make up for what he finds to be the growing share of wealth by the uh, upper tiers of society. There isn't really, in Ronley's uh, paper, anything really looking at kind of uh, proposals for uh, for relieving inequality. Do you think this is, uh, th that would be out of the scope of this paper? Uh I agree that Ronley doesn't offer any policy suggestion. His is focused on uh, casting doubt on Piketty's projections. Uh, but I would also say that there are 
classic reasons for not taxing uh, man-made productive assets, machines and buildings, and reasons for concentrating taxes on the assets that are not produced by human effort. Uh, And uh, there's nothing that either Piketty or Ronley says that uh, undermines the argument for concentrating taxes on land and other forms of privilege. And, and in talking about production here, he also he also looks at the share to labor, the share to capital, and and finally uh, a direct tax on production, which is something that actually is is as I understand maps only onto the the value added tax, the VAT that we see across the world, but not in America. Uh, well, what do you think the relevance is of of, of a VAT in, in in all this? Well, from an economic perspective, uh, value added tax is pretty much equivalent to a sales tax. And we don't have a nationwide sales tax, but we do have sales taxes in lots of states. <clears throat> and uh, I guess one significant difference between a value-added tax and a sales tax is that a value-added tax is often levied at a higher rate than a sales tax. And it, one reason for this is that it seems likely that uh, tax cheating will be smaller under a value-added tax than under a sales tax that is designed to uh, collect the same revenue. Uh, So anyway, uh, a value-added tax is uh, probably better than some other sources of revenue, but not nearly as good as taxing land and privilege. Yeah, we've been in conversation with uh, Nicholas Tiedemann uh, talking about Matthew Rungley's paper, uh, Deciphering the Fallen Rise and the Net Capital Share Accumulation or Scarcity, a rebuttal of some points in Thomas Piketty's uh, work, Capital in the 21st Century. Uh, In conclusion, when people uh, think back into uh, these findings, uh, what do you what do you think is the the most important takeaway of of this of this whole uh, paper? Well, uh, we shouldn't be concerned about uh, the rich accumulating more and more wealth and uh, therefore uh, getting a greater and greater share of output. Uh, the accumulation of wealth is likely to mean that we have a more productive economy. Uh, there, there really isn't a need to defend ourselves against that future, at least in terms of the evidence we have so far. Uh, so if we want to uh, tax the rich, we should tax them on their land holdings and their privilege, uh, not on uh, their accumulations uh, of savings. Well, thank you very much for your time here. I'd love to actually have you back on and talk about your own work, uh, but it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you uh, come on and, and talk about the importance and a lot of the uh, mathematical nuts and bolts of uh, Matthew Runley's paper uh, uh, today on the on the program. Uh, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. This has uh, been the Henry George Program. You can find uh, previous episodes and more information online at seethecats.org. This is uh, brought to you by KZSU Stanford.